So in a famous teaching by now um, infamous teacher, church leader, Bill Hybels, um, he defined leadership this way. Uh, and I think this is, whether you know Bill or not or his situation, this is, stance is helpful. He says, um, leadership at its most basic is moving people from here to there. It's really, really simple. You can draw it this way. From here, status quo, life as is, life that's comfortable, life where you're at, just a sober look at reality, to there. There is a vision, a better vision of what life could be, of what life should be, but it's not yet. And so leadership at its most basic is leading people from here to there, from five pounds that I've gained over the holidays to a schweltfall, Um, from being in mounds of holiday debt to going to Financial Peace University and um, being debt-free in 2019. You get the idea. Leadership at its most basic is to move from here to there. And the job of the leader is to paint a picture of there, of what it would be like if we were just there. Can you imagine it? Can you feel it? Can you experience it? Like, what would life be like if we were there? And then you align uh, people, resources, strategies to move people from here to there, from current reality to what could be. This simple chart kind of says it all. It's... um. It defines, like, if you think through the most famous leadership things we have, um, uh, JFK's putting a man on, uh, let's put a man on the moon, uh, Bill Gates, let's put a computer in every home, Bono's, let's eradicate stupid poverty, like, every type of major leadership, you, trying to get your kids to do their homework, from here, not done, to here, done, like, whatever it is, it's, that's, Leadership in a nutshell. This, of course, is so simple, it's to be simplistic. But what made this particular teaching so powerful, or at least uh, helpful, was that he stopped and said, Now, where do leaders fail? Where are leaders most likely to stumble in this process of leading people or even leading themselves, self leadership, leading their families, leading their organizations? Why do Churches and companies and governments and families fail to lead people from here to there. It's usually not here. It's usually not at the, 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 not at the vision aspect. The, even even the, the beginner leaders, they get the idea that you've got to paint a compelling image of what life would be like if we were there. Vision casting is not where people usually fail. Even, even a paltry job of messaging can be overcome with passion and fervor for what life would be like. And it's usually not in strategy. I mean, most of our leadership training is in strategy. How do you align the resources, the people, the things to get those things done? You can get consulting, the coaching. There are ways to overcome strategy. Even if you do fail, and people do make mistakes, major mistakes in their strategy of getting from here to there, even if you make mistakes, those those usually won't do you in. A good leader will learn from their mistakes and keep on going. This is where most leaders fail is here. They grossly underestimate just how comfortable it would be for all of us to stay right where we're at. 
that no matter how attractive the vision is, most people find the prospect of changing more daunting than just staying the same. Heibel suggests that if a leader does not take the time to convince people how terrible it would be to stay here, they have no chance, no matter how beautiful this vision is, no matter how great the strategy is, they have no chance of getting people to actually move on that pathway. It is human nature 101. When do you change? When the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing, right? That's when you change. If we are not unhappy with where we are, we will never reach what we are not. Here is way too comfortable for most of us. And this is not just a problem of leadership in general, like getting people to sell widgets or leading a corporation or a government or a family or even leading yourself. We find that this is true, painfully, awkwardly true in our relationship with God. So if you've ever read the Old Testament, let me tell you the story. God's people get into some horrific thing that they do to themselves, where here becomes so painful. Life here is so painful. They cry out to God, God, save us. What are we going to do? God comes in, saves them. They get on the track. They worship God. They rejoice. We're saved. We're saved. And then what do they do? Say, ah, we don't need God anymore. We got this. We got this. We can handle this. We don't need God until life gets so bad that they come back here, right? They, they, they get off track again and again and again. So many times that if you read the Old Testament, you're like, you know exactly where the story is going. You're like, will these people ever learn? And yet, are we so different? Almost everyone in this room has lived this at least once where life is falling apart. They're desperate for God. But after he solves that, after the desperation goes away, we drift. We stop seeking God. We stop looking to go there. We stop moving forward time and time and time again. When, when life is bad, then we're ready to seek God. We're ready to read the scriptures. We're so hungry for Bible studies. And, for, and when, when we start, we're here, right? It's a New Year's resolution. Yes, I'm going to start off so strong. But, but as soon as life gets easy, I don't need God anymore. So this January and February, we are in a series called Forward. We will be um, studying Romans 5 through 8, and these four chapters of the scriptures are perhaps better than any other section of scriptures. They will summarize, outline, and detail the way forward, the way from here to there, the way to follow Christ from, from here, a sober look at where's my heart, what's controlling me in life, how is sin deforming my soul, how is my soul bent and misshaped, how am I not yet made like Jesus Christ, to there. Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're more than conquerors. That's where we're going to go. That's where we're headed. These four chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to lead us from a life that's lived in our own strength to a life in Christ, from a life that's about me to a life that's in him, from here to there. And this week, by way of introduction, I don't want to start in Romans. I want to start in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, um, 
the Apostle Paul reminds us of how knowing Jesus is a lifelong journey that Christians are on. That, that if you are a Christian, you're, living, you're supposed to be living on this pathway. Every single day of your life is this path. Sorry about that. I just skipped a circumcision there. I don't know how that happened. That's exciting. Um, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that we cannot live. In Philippians chapter 3, the reason I want to start here is because it gives us not only the snapshot of what the Christian life is really about, what the good news of Jesus Christ is really about, about this life transformation, this journey we're all supposed to be on. But Paul makes it painfully, awkwardly, Obvious that no matter where here is for you today, if you want to follow Christ, you cannot stay here. Whatever's controlling you today, whatever's deforming your soul, God's calling you to take a next step. If you're not unhappy with where you are, you will never become what you are called to be. Philippians chapter 3. All right, so let's start out. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you have your text, feel free to turn there. We're going to dive fairly deep in this. I'm using an older version of the NIV if you're looking for what translation we're following here. So you'll, you'll see some maybe nuances from the text you're looking at. But it starts like this. Finally, my brothers and sisters, and I love this line for the Apostle Paul. He's like halfway through the letter. And he's like, finally. It's like one of my sermons. Um, Finally, you're only halfway through. My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. He's going to say, you've heard this before. You've heard this before. I've said it to you before. You know this. This is nothing new. It's a reminder because they need reminded. Because we need reminded. And I just want to stop right here and say, you know, one of the, um, there's this fascinating intersection here of, of the longer, the person who's most likely to be disillusioned with church, most likely to be cynical about church, you know who it is? It's the person who's attending church the longest. What happens is psychologically, like you can see this, this done in studies across time, that people, after they learn a certain amount, they're expecting to learn something new. They're expecting for something new to be given to them. They find that church is kind of on repeat. It's like, oh, small groups again. A sermon about the gospel again. Jesus died for my sins. I've heard this before. And they're most likely to get disillusioned. But the Apostle Paul is saying, um, the Christian life is not about learning new things as much as it is about being reminded of the things you already know. It's not about constantly gathering new information, but it's about living into the simple truths of the faith. And it's no trouble for me to say these things over and over and over again. You're a child of God. I am who you say I am. Chosen, not forsaken, we just sang these words. Why do we sing these words over and over again? Because you and I need reminded. And then he goes on to lambast some people. Watch this. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Um, this is just a little nuance here. In the Greek text, each one of those words starts with a k, sound like a k what we would say K in, in English, uh, kuneus, kakos, kata, 
Kumano or something. And, and, and one scholar points out that it literally, the Apostle Paul is using this, this, this device um, to make it sound like he's spitting each word out, which is a very foul way of, of um, doing things in the ancient world. But you don't need to know Greek to know that the Apostle Paul does not like these people. He calls them dogs, these filthy animals in the ancient world. He calls them evildoers, literally. Workers of evil. Like, what's your profession? I'm a worker of evil. That's the sense. Those mutilators of the flesh. And the last time we've seen this in the scriptures is um, going to be 1 Kings 18. It's this big scene at Mount Carmel. There's Elijah, the prophet of God, and 450 prophets of Baal. And they're all calling out to their god, Baal, Baal. Oh, rain down fire from heaven. Burn this, this sacrifice on this altar. And Elijah's over here sitting there mocking them. And so what do they do to try and get their God's attention? It says, you know, they danced and they sang. And when that didn't work, they mutilated their flesh. They cut themselves, mutilating themselves. And the Apostle Paul says, whoever these people are, they're dogs. They're like professional workers of evil. They're mutilators of the flesh. That's what they're like. And now we get, the question is, is who are you talking about, Paul? These sound like terrible people. And we find out, if you do a little research, these are the, a group that the Apostle Paul will call in other places, the Judaizers. If you met a Judaizer, you would not think of these words. They are super church-going people. They're super rule-following religious people. They are people who say that to be a Christian, you need to follow not only that Jesus loves you and believe that, but you need to follow the Old Testament law and some other laws that they made up. You need to keep all the Jewish laws, so you'll remember some of those from the book of Leviticus, like not mixing cotton and wool, like not eating pork, and um, not drinking uh, milk with your meat, and those bizarre ones about not touching sick people. He says, they say, you've got to do all of those if you want to be a good Christian. Jesus was a Jew. If you want to be like Jesus, you have to become a Jew too. In fact, they would then say anyone who did not follow the laws that they followed, the Old Testament laws, they would call other people, if you were not following the Old Testament law, you were a dog to them. They would say that they called themselves actually workers of good, like their profession was, we are servants of God, we serve God, we, we are professional workers of good. And then lastly, they called themselves, not mutilators of the flesh, but the circumcision. That's the actual the title they gave to themselves. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home and talk to your mom. We're not going to talk about that right now. But you, you, it's, you, most of you get the idea here that they, they called themselves, we are the people of circumcision from a biblical viewpoint, is the sign that God gave to Abraham, this physical sign on his body, and all of his, his sons and to, for future generations, that they were children of God. So this people, they said, we're like Jesus. We follow the law like Jesus. Anyone who doesn't is a dog. We're the workers of good. We're the people whose bodies, our very bodies, show that we are children of God. But Paul says, no, you're dogs. You're the dogs. You're not workers of good. You're workers of evil. You are not people who are children of God. You're mutilators of the flesh. You're following some idolatrous thing. 
And he actually turns it around on them. Verse 3, he says, For we, it is we, who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. You think that we're the dogs, but the fact is you're the dogs. You think that we're the, the ones who, who work evil, when in fact we're the ones who serve God by his Spirit. We're God's workforce. You think that we uh, need to be circumcised, but we, he uses this term, we put no confidence in the flesh that you put all your confidence in this physical sign of flesh or actually the absence of flesh on your body but we have no confidence in in that and so the apostle paul is saying you say that you're the circumcision in fact you self-title yourself that and by the way can you imagine can you imagine inviting people to your church what church do you go to Ah, you know i'd love for you to come to church which one is it again it's the circumcision church I think I'm busy that Sunday. The Apostle Paul says, no, no, um, you say that you are the children of God, but in fact, we are. So the Judaizers, their message was, God will accept you if you follow these rules. If you're circumcised. God will love you when you stop sinning. But Paul says that's not true We put no confidence in these things. And literally, no confidence in the flesh has that double meaning then. He's talking about circumcision on the one hand, but flesh, for the Apostle Paul, also refers to um, the part of you, the human propensity that is towards yourself and away from God that says, I want to do things on my own. So in this sense, confidence in the flesh is the Apostle's shorthand of, of talking about the belief that you can manage life on your own. It's the belief that you don't need God, that I've got this. I can work harder. I can make myself better. I can figure this out. And Paul is saying, get this, Paul is saying, to be clear, that to be a Christian, to be a child of God is to have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in your ability to manage life apart from God. No confidence that I got this, that I don't need God. So, in this text, you get, immediately get the sense right off the bat that the Apostle Paul, he's talking to the, the Philippians, and he has no sense that this is actually a problem there, but he wants to remind them of this, to remind them of what the gospel really is. That the Judaizers, these circumcision group, they've taken the gospel, and they've not just tried to make Christians moral, they've actually tried to redefine the good news of Jesus Christ. That they've defined Christianity as something you can achieve on your own by religious activities, by moral behavior. They said, you have to believe in Jesus. If you want to be a Christian, you believe in Jesus and be circumcised and follow the Old Testament kosher laws and follow the Jewish holidays. They added to it. They took a relationship with the living God of the universe, Jesus Christ, and made it into a list of do's and don'ts. And this, the Apostle Paul says, is destroying the gospel. This doesn't work. You cannot define a relationship with God of the universe as a list of do's and don'ts. This does not work in life. This doesn't even work in our relationships. So, so if you ask me, like, how's your relationship with your wife? And I'm like, well, let me tell you what I do and don't do. Right? Like, um, I, I load the dishwasher and she fixed dinner for us last night and she vacuumed and I fixed this and did this and what I don't do, um, I haven't punched her in the face. 
Um, haven't dated anyone else. Like, it doesn't work. That's not enough. Why? Because, because I could hire someone to do all these things for me. But we know that the marriage is something that is not for sale. It's not merely an agreement to do the right things and not do the bad things, that it's sharing your very self. And we all know, we all know, we all have experienced relationships where everyone's staying in their lane, they're doing the right things, but you despise each other. See, that, that a list of do's and don'ts, marriage cannot be boiled down to that, and neither can a relationship with God. And so these Judaizers, they are not just trying to make Christians moral. They're exchanging a, a life-giving relationship with the God of the universe for a bunch of rules. They're saying that Jesus is not enough. He's not satisfying. He's not able to save. His love is not unconditional. His death cannot pay for all your sins. That if you want God's love and approval, you have to earn God's grace. And the Apostle Paul will have none of this. And you want to know why? Because he's tried it. He's going down that path. He's tried to earn God's love and approval. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. So we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And now he's going to give us kind of this, this personal story. And in a classic like Hebrew way, he's going to give us seven things. Seven things that, he's, that describe his status and his achievements that are escalating both chronologically and theologically of like how great he tried to achieve God's love. And it says this, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his status. He's the perfect Jew. Like you want to talk about someone who's from the lineage of Abraham. He says, it's me. I have that status. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Like I followed all 613 of the Old Testament laws. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. I was perfect. Like if ever there was a way to get to God, to get righteousness, I did it. It was faultless. And with that, he's done it. He says, I achieved it. I achieved righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. I didn't need Jesus to do that. Nobody does. You can be self-righteous all on your own. So I want you to see the, the irony here. In believing that he had to earn his way to God... He rejected Jesus, the only way to God. That in thinking he could achieve his way to God through his own flesh, he rejected God in the flesh. Like, do you see the tragedy of this? That the very people who work the hardest at earning God's approval are the people who usually miss out on God's approval because it can't be earned. I want you to hear how radical this is. This is the apostles' gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, and this is often missed in churches today. Is not just that you have to repent of your sins. Of course you do. That a way to cut yourself off from God is being irreligious by saying, I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. I've got it. I'll handle it on my own. I'm confident in myself. I can figure this out. I don't need God. That, of course, is one way to reject God. But he says, the other thing you have to repent of to become a Christian, it's not just being irreligious, it's being religious. 
thinking that you can earn God's favor, that you, if you follow these rules, God somehow owes you, that you deserve God's approval. Because in the same way the irreligious person says, I don't want God, I can handle this. The religious person says, I can earn it. I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. And both of those, the Apostle Paul says, both of those have to be repented of for us to experience the life-changing grace. They can't be earned. It can only be received. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit... All those things that I once prided myself in, my status, my achievements, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Really important here. The Greek word everything there means everything. Compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He calls it all lost. It's like he looks at everything he's done in his life, everything he's earned, everything that gave him value apart from Jesus Christ, everything that he thought could get him to heaven. He looks at all of it and says, compared to Jesus and the gift that I can receive, not earn, I compare it all a loss, but he's going to go even further. He says, I consider them rubbish. This is um, a word worth meditating on. In Greek, this is the word there all the first-year seminary students giggle and say, skoopalo. Um, it's, uh, it's probably very similar to English words that I'm not allowed to repeat in church. Uh, referring to like, uh, so in, in the ancient Roman world, they had this, uh, they didn't have underground sewage systems, they had gutter systems, and all the stuff that you'd throw in the gutter, which would be um, leftover food waste, um, anything you'd flush down the toilet, human excrement, all of that stuff that was in that gutter, that is scubala. The Apostle Paul says, when I look at all those things and compare them to Jesus Christ, to the fact that they were keeping me from Jesus Christ, I look at them as scubala. Rubbish. It's revolting. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness for my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Um, there's a phrase in here. This is such a beautiful passage. But there's a phrase in here that really encapsulates it, that I would consider them all rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may be with Jesus and be found in him. This is one of those theological terms that um, a lot of times we like we, we spin our wheels on. It's really such a simple, simple picture that sometimes I think we lose the simplicity of it. So let's make this simple again. This is 1980s Malibu Ken. Yeah. He's got a tuxedo on, but it's backless. Uh, so he's ready for church, but a little saucy today. So here's Ken. And here's a bowl. Now here's Ken in the bowl. Any questions? Ken in the bowl. What does it mean for him to be in the bowl? It means that if you're going to see Ken, you have to see him through the bowl. He's surrounded by it, kept by it. He's within it. It means that if you want to see his perfect hair, 
You have to look at it through the bowl. What does it mean to be found in Christ? It means that you're surrounded by him, kept in him. That if anyone is going to see you, they have to see you through Christ. It's so simple and yet so utterly profound. To be found in Christ means that God looks on you and says, you are my child and him and her, I am well pleased. That God does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That he does not see your brokenness. He sees that Christ was broken to make you whole. It means to be found in Christ, that God sees you in Christ. That you are the man, the woman, the child, the mother, the father, whatever you are. You are now in Christ. That he sees you complete in him. He sees who you're called to be. He sees you there. To be found in Christ means that whatever happened to Christ and his death and resurrection. It's not just about Christ. It's about you. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. Like all the stuff that I thought would make give me God's approval, I throw all that away, but, but that which is through faith in Christ, it's a gift The righteousness that comes from God that is by faith. The righteousness just means right standing with God that comes by faith. Just by believing in Jesus Christ, I receive the gift. There's nothing I can do to earn it. And then the Apostle Paul, having shared his story, says what I think is maybe one of the most powerful verses in all of the scriptures. I want to know Christ. You know, when the apostle wrote this, he was in prison later in life, I think around 60, 62 AD. He'd been following Christ for years. He had met him like face to face, actually talked with him. He wrote most of the New Testament at this point. And yet his heart's cry that far along in his journey is, I want more of him. I want To know him. Yes, the power of his resurrection. Like, of course, I want his life. I want that life that he's living right now. And participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That I I want to die so that I can become like him. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. That that by somehow, by, by trusting in Christ, I know, I know, I know. The resurrection power is there. And if you know anything about resurrection, it's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but all who believe in him will rise from the dead. In fact, the whole world will be fixed, will be made whole, will be renewed. It will be a new creation. That when he sees Jesus Christ, he doesn't just see hope that he could live forever, but he sees a new hope for the whole world. It is a vision Well, that we don't really see completed until Revelation chapter 20 and 22. Knowing all the facts about Jesus, Paul knows all the stories about Jesus. He knows all the teachings of Jesus, but it's not enough. That having met Jesus, he's consumed with a desire for Jesus. And and this, I I want you to have a sense of this. 
The Apostle Paul thinks the Christian life is not just that you believe the gospel, that you stop believing in other things and you believe Jesus and check that off the list. Now I can do whatever I want. But that having believed the gospel, that it's a gift from God, now I'm going to spend my whole life pursuing him. I want more. I want more. I want more. And then even at the end of his life, when he thinks he might die, what's his call? I want more. I want to know him. I want to know him that the, the end of Christian perfection as I said, is that of none. It's, it's Moses, who's actually talked to God as a man talks to a friend. And yet at the end of his life, what's his one great request of God? You know, I've heard all this, I've experienced this, I've, I've been used by you. Show me your glory. Like, I want to see you. It's the psalmist. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you, my heart and my flesh and my job and my health and my family. Everything may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is, it is Mary. You think Mary. The woman who comes in and, and sits at Jesus' feet and having experienced his forgiveness, she just weeps and weeps and weeps and her tears go down and cover his feet and she uses her hair to dry it off. She just wants to be near him. Down through the ages, this is the story of every Christian heart that those who truly know Jesus want more of him, that the mark that you've experienced is grace, is that you're hungry for more, for more, for more. There's an early church father, Christian um, martyr named uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and he's famous for saying, I, like he was, he was um, captured by Rome and going to be taken to the, um, fed to the lions, and some Christians were going to try and stop it. They're like, oh, let's see if we can get in the way. Let's see if we can interfere with this. And he said, no, don't stop it. I long to be ground in the teeth flying that I can become the bread of life for others. That I can be God's bread. And Augustine, one of the famous church fathers, says it this way. What I once feared to lose, like the Apostle Paul said, was a joy to put away. For you cast them away from me. You who are the true and highest sweetness, you cast them away and entered in their place. Like what I once so clung to and loved. When I experienced you, that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. I couldn't wait to get more of you. Bernard of Clairvaux says it this way. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Like once I've tasted you, I just want more. Once I've eaten of you, I want more. I want to know you. The great commentator Matthew Henry on this passage says, wherever there is true grace, there is always a desire for more that the mark of the Christian life, the Apostle Paul says, is those who've experienced Jesus want more, want more, want more. But before you all give up on whether you're a Christian or not, look at this next verse. Not that I've already attained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus has t- taken Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm not yet at perfection. 
I'm just longing for this. It's not like my desires are perfect. It's not like my, my life is perfect. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, forgetting all those things that I used to cling to, all those things that I found my value in, all those things that I was so proud of, all those things I gave my life to, all those things I, I, I used to build myself up to create my own ego apart from God. I forget those. I now consider those lost scubula that I may press on towards the goal, that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him. A couple of um, weeks ago, I was reading a, uh, an ancient sermon on this very passage, and it's um, by Augustine, who is Augustine of Hippo, a 4th century um, genius Christian leader, one of the most formative people in not only church history, but Western thinking. In his passage on this, he has this fantastic quote to summarize the end of this section. He says this, on earth, we are wayfarers. We are pilgrims, always on the go. This means that we have to keep moving forward We have to. Therefore, be always unhappy about where you are if you want to reach what you are not. Be unhappy with here if you want to go there. If you are pleased with what you are, you've stopped already. If you say it is enough, you are lost. Keep on walking, moving forward, trying for the goal. Don't try to stop on the way or go back or deviate from it. Be always unhappy about where you are if you want to reach what you are not. Um, My question for 2019 is, have you gotten too comfortable? Have I gotten too comfortable? That's awkward. (laughs) That's not comfortable question. Have I... Got enough of Jesus, figured out this church thing, pretty content with where I'm at spiritually, don't really need to work with that? Or have you tasted Jesus? And do you have that longing that the Apostle Paul has even at the end of his life? I want him. His sin, as the way it does, it, it creeps in there and it, it, bends our soul and offsets our desires so that we start desiring the wrong things. We stop thinking that what we start thinking the wrong things are going to satisfy us when they're not. Where where's your desires going? 